and out breath. Okay, can you hear all right? Yeah. Okay, just as a preamble to this evening's talk, just I just want to acknowledge that I know that there are some of you in this room who are artists and painters, so please don't be offended by the metaphor and the imagery I'm using tonight because I'm not speaking about dissing the creative process. I am actually going to speak about the process in which distress is created. So I want to reflect on the theme of painting our world. So I'd like to invite you to imagine yourself as an artist and you're standing in front of a blank canvas and in your hand you hold a palette of colors with which you're going to paint your world. And how would you paint your world? Or perhaps a more present moment question is, how are you painting your world just now? Are you painting your world with your views, with your moods, with your wants, with your disappointments? Are you painting your world with your joys or your sorrows? with aversion or with kindness, with fear or with confidence? Are you painting your world with spaciousness or contractedness? Being mindful that whatever world we paint, that this is the world we inhabit, this is the world we react to, this is the world that shapes our choices and our speech and our behaviors. It's a world that defines our aspirations and sense of possibility or defines our sense of limitation and impossibility. Now, much of the painting that we engage in can actually feel to be quite automatic, often repetitive. Much of the paintings we find ourselves standing in, they often have a feeling of uncertainty, of unpredictability, that we didn't choose them. And we didn't choose them. We can wake up in the morning and almost feel like we step into a world that is waiting for us, that has already been shaped without our conscious choice or intention, almost feels preformed. We can wake up in the morning and feel we step into a, a world of sadness or doubt or a world of anxiety. And we can feel really quite fortunate if we step into a world where there's happiness and stillness and calm. And the Buddha was passionate about understanding the architecture of distress and struggle and suffering so as to bring it to an end. And he clearly pointed out that if we're going to understand how distress comes into being, then we also need to understand the architecture of our own world of experience and how it is shaped. I want to read you something from Goethe. It says, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. 
It's my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. Now, the Buddha speaks of the world in two ways. One way that he speaks about the world is the world of conditions. So each moment in our days, our sense doors are flooded with sensory impressions. Sight, sound, smell, sensations, taste. And through the sense door of the mind, all of the cascading thoughts and images and memory. We see that we live within this world of events that are streaming around us and they are streaming within us. And some of those events are lovely and some of them are unlovely. We meet events of remarkable generosity and kindness and events of equally remarkable ill will and confusion and ignorance. And as we've mentioned, we are always touching and being touched by the world in every moment of experience. The second world that the Buddha speaks about is the personal world of experience, the world of this heart, this mind, this body, the world of my views, Uh, confusion or understanding. The world of personal experience in the ways that we interpret and react to the world of conditions and events. So these two worlds, the the world of events and sensory impressions and the world of inner experience, they are co-arising We are deeply impacted by the world around us and we deeply impact the world of events and conditions by how we respond. Now, this co-arising does not translate necessarily as co-dependence. So we can be in the midst of the most delightful conditions you know, the sun shining, wonderful food, lovely people, and be entirely miserable. We can be in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances and conditions and find our, the capacity within ourselves to be deeply peaceful, compassionate, and wisely responsive. Now, In my mind, it's so important to be so clear about these two interfacing and interacting worlds and to be able to distinguish between them. At the heart of the Buddha's teaching, he proposed that we can find a way to live in this world of conditions and events, much of which we neither choose nor can control that we can learn to live in the midst of this world of conditions and events 
without being a hostage to that world, without being defined by that world. And yet, equally acknowledging that none of us are invulnerable to this world of conditions. There are times when life just hurts. You know, we live in times when we we face so much crisis, you know, a climate emergency, so much mistrust, so much alienation, and sometimes life hurts. We are we are hurt by the levels of injustice and harm that are being done in the world. And this world of conditions and events requires what one teacher called an appropriate response. A response of care, responses of clarity, responses of courage, and responses of change. But our personal world also asks for an appropriate response, which is understanding. It's a saying that people think of their mind something like being like a mirror, more or less reflecting the world as it is. Not appreciate the mind is not, not appreciating that the mind is the principal architect of that world. We tend to believe our views well to be right above all else, but we tend to believe our views to be absolute. We, we tend to think of our opinions as being definitive. We tend to think of our moods and our emotions and our thoughts as being reliable and trustworthy until you've sat with them for a bit. (laughs) Then we say this is how the world is. This is how life is. Our views about ourselves and our views about others are actually held with equal conviction and certainty. We say I am or you are. And I think it's quite hard and at times quite humbling for us to accept that we may not be seeing the world, we may not be seeing the moment, I may not be seeing you, I may not be seeing myself. What I am actually maybe seeing is simply my moods and my views. You might find yourself saying, and I've had this heard this quite a few times. I'm I'm not aversive. I'm I'm just helpfully pointing out your imperfections. (laughs) We might find ourselves saying, you know, it's a simple fact that the world is populated by greedy and selfish people. We might say, I'm I'm actually not an anxious person. This uh, This world is actually threatening all the time. And no one can be trusted. No one can be relied upon. You know, I, I find this person we call the Buddha to be have the most remarkable mind. I, I live in awe of his clarity and insight. Uh, it is really quite extraordinary. But the Buddha looked at his own mind and at the minds of others and saw that the world of experience is a process. That the world of experience is something that is being built and fabricated moment to moment. 
and that the key to our freedom lies in understanding that fabricating process. So in looking at his own mind, quite extraordinary this, the Buddha offered a, a map. I often think of the Buddha as being a map maker. You know, he offered a map or, or in the form of two cognitive chains that can be traced and tracked in our own experience um, as ways in which our world of experience, our personal world, is fabricated. So this world of the moment, our world of the moment, is actually fabricated with remarkable speed, isn't it? You know, you can be quite happy in one moment, and next moment you found yourself caught in terror. You know, you can be quite peaceful one moment, and in the next moment you've got this whole world of planning and agitation and rehearsal. Doesn't it just all seem to happen so quickly? So to begin to trace this process of fabrication requires really considerable stilling and mindfulness. And yet, this is, of course, one of the primary gifts of this path that we cultivate, that we begin to slow down these inner processes so they can be investigated, so they can be understood. And this is, of course, what takes the bewilderment out of life. Instead of asking with despair, you know, how did this happen? How did I end up here? You know, often followed by the word again. (laughs) We actually know how we ended up where we are in confusion or in contractedness or unhappiness or or in calmness and peace and spaciousness. And we we begin to have confidence in our capacity, uh, the possibility of finding another way, another way of being characterized by clarity and spaciousness and understanding. So these cognitive chains are, are kind of The ways, as I mentioned, these are the ways our world is built moment to moment. And they're both slightly different. But both of them can actually be tracked in our own experience. So I want to read you the first of these. Uh, I just need to explain one term, although I think most of you understand what, what contact means in Buddhist psychology. To understand what contact means in Buddhist psychology, contact is simply the meeting of the sense door with the sensory impression and the knowing. The eye meets the sight and there's seeing. The ear meets the sound and there's hearing. The mind meets the thought and there's thinking. That that meeting is called contact. Okay. So where there is contact, there is feeling tone. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate about. What we proliferate about, we dwell upon. What we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. And the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world. You okay with that? Do you want me to read it again? Hmm? Where there is contact, there is feeling tone. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate about. 
what we proliferate about, we dwell upon. What we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. And the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world. This is my world of experience, moment to moment. Now the second cognitive chain that the Buddha spoke about goes slightly in a slightly different direction, but basically begins and ends in the same place. So where there is contact, there is feeling tone. That feeling tone is a condition for craving. Craving is the condition for clinging or identification. <clears throat> and clinging is the condition for becoming, becoming a particular kind of person who has a particular kind of world. I'll read that second one again. So where there is contact, there is feeling tone. Feeling tone <coughs> is a condition for craving. Craving is a condition for clinging or identification. And clinging is a condition for becoming. <coughs> so essentially what is being said is that we become defined by what is identified with. If we identify with the, the events of the body, I am the body. If sadness is identified with, I'm sad. If anxiety is identified with, I am afraid. If doubt is identified with, I'm hopeless, I'm incapable. If shame is identified with, I become the kind of person who is unworthy or unlovable. So the Buddha put it very clearly that this world of experience arises on contact. And with the cessation of contact, there is a cessation of the world. He went on to say that the foolish pursue contact and the wise seek to understand it. The world that ceases is not talking about an annihilation of this world of sensory impressions and events and uh, phenomena. The world that ceases is the world of fabrication. The world that ceases is the world of distress and contracted, contractedness. One of the synonyms for nibbana or liberation is the unfabricated. So, contact we have no choice over, and contact is ethically neutral, okay? Eyes meet sights, ears meet sounds, body meets sensations, tongue meets taste. This is ethically neutral, and it is not something we control. This will be happening as long as we live, Okay? There's no charge around this. It's what it means to be alive. In some Buddhist imagery, the sixth sense doors, and I think it's important to know in Buddhist psychology that the mind is the sixth sense door. There's the five you know, conventional sense doors, and the mind is the sixth. So in some imagery of Buddhist psychology, the sixth sense doors are portrayed as the five open windows of the house and the mind is the open door of the house and through the windows and the door flows the world of sensory impressions that we live in the midst of there is nothing personal about this this is not about me it's simply life so what we're learning to do in this practice 
is to seat mindfulness, to seat awareness, and to seat investigation on the windowsills and on the door sill. Where there is contact, there is feeling tone. Now, this is where our world actually moves from being uh, quite impersonal into a place where we're actually beginning to paint my world. So what is contacted has the feeling tone, as we've talked about, of being either pleasant or unpleasant or neither. What we feel we perceive We have a name for dog, banana, garbage truck, you know, lunch table, mop, you know. So what we we feel, we perceive, we have a name for, for what is arising through the sense doors. Now here our world, the world that is being painted, actually is becoming a little bit more personal. Um, Our personal world is beginning to take shape. Now, perception, of course, as we've mentioned, can be simply navigational and necessary, or perception can be charged with associations, with memory, and with emotional memory. I say banana. You know, for one person, immediately on hearing that word, their, their minds are flipped back into some amazing vacation in Jamaica. Yeah. We hear the sound of the bell. And for one person, or more than one person, we're immediately thrown back into the emotion and the memory, emotional memory, about the last difficult sitting. So what we perceive, we think about, and we begin to proliferate about. We are narrative-based beings, and we have really no shortage of stories and commentary about pretty much everything. You may have noticed this. <laughs> and, you know, too soon we find ourselves captured by the story, and the story is beginning to tell us who we are. Hmm? The story is beginning to tell us who another person is, or what life is like. And that story is very often loaded with memories, with associations, with emotions. And the mind is being shaped, the world is being shaped, my world of experience is being painted. Two people stand on a beach. One person is absolutely delighted by the prospect of a swim. The other is afraid of the water. Two people see a deer coming out of the woods. One person is immediately in raptures about Bambi and, you know, whatever. The other person sees a tick carrier. (laughs) Two people hear the same lunch bell. One is immediately salivating with anticipation Another is worried about the calorie load. Two people hear the same wake-up bell. One leaps out of bed eager for another day of astonishing insight (laughs) in this really lovely community of people. 
And one does, <laughs> I'm going to use this phrase again. Uh, sorry, duvets means quilts. Huh? The other does the duvet dive, you know. I don't want this day, you know, in the company of a hundred depressed people, you know, <laughs> churning out one breath after another. What's so interesting about that after all, you know. Two people living in quite different worlds, and both are likely to be quite convinced that their world is the real world. Now, these are quite benign examples, but many of these worlds are not benign at all. You know, many of these worlds that are constructed are the roots of conflict, of dysfunction, of hatred, of prejudice that blight the lives of too many. So let's look at this in a slightly different way, that where there is contact, um, there is feeling tone. Now, all sensory impressions imprint on consciousness in this pre-verbal way, as we've mentioned, as being pleasant or unpleasant or neither. Feeling tone is a condition for craving. There the world is really being painted. We find ourselves impulsively moving towards the pleasant, away from the unpleasant, and ignoring the neither. The world is becoming very personal. Our painting has taken shape. That makes me happy. That makes me unhappy. You know, that is really threatening. You know, that is really supportive. That is really beautiful. That is really ugly. You know, that's really worth pursuing. That's really worth avoiding. It happens in small and large ways so quickly, you know. You sit and there's a a little itch in your back and the hand is already there. You know, you sit or you're walking, you're a little discontented, you're already at the turn, you know. It happens so, so quickly. You know, we see, move into the dining room, see the sign for lunch, and we're already planning about how to get first in the lunch line, you know, without anybody noticing um, uh, that we've been first in the lunch line every day. You know, So, uh, you know, and then the mind is already sort of like doing something with that, perception and that feeling tone and that craving that's arising and actually you can see because these are continuums when we talk about clinging clinging is only an intensification of craving and aversion it's not something separate so as craving and aversion intensify the mind uh, the mind begins to contract around that craving and aversion. And this is becoming very personal. Contract around the craving and aversion, liking and disliking. And that magnification or that intensification of contractedness is clinging. That's identification. And where there is clinging, there is becoming and birth. The birth of the I am. The self of the moment. And the view of self that is shaped by whatever has been contracted around. And that self-view, of course, shapes our world, shapes how we speak, how we react, how we think, and the choices that we make. Now, the invitation for us is to really explore what is happening at the open windows and doors of the house as the sensory impressions flow in. And learning to seat mindfulness on those windowsills and door sills, because this is where we begin ever so slowly 
you know, we begin ever so slowly to have choices about the picture that is being painted and the world that is being shaped. This is where we can begin ever so slowly sometimes to begin to step out of the world of fabrication. And we have touched on this about a few times that where there is mindfulness, there are some choices about where we place our attention and the quality of that attention. And where there are choices, there is a possibility of intention and the possibility of freedom, of no longer finding ourselves imprisoned by the pictures that I painted. Touched by the world and touching the world, sensory impressions flow in. The choices are about what flows out. If we understand the architecture of distress, actually if we are to understand the architecture of distress, we have to understand how this, inner, how this world of experience is being fabricated and shaped moment to moment. And I realize I'm really using mixed metaphors here, but you know, I'm not going to apologize too much for it. <laughs> there's, there's this wonderful verse from the Buddha. He says, Through many lives I sought in vain the builder of this house of pain. Now, builder, thee I plainly see. Thy rafters and gables broke. My heart has peace. I I quite like this, you know, because it it has something to do with, you know, how, how we... You know, Narayan even referred referred to it the other night, you know, and she, you're coming to a room at IMS, you know, and you want to bring your rug, you know. I've got to make it my house, you know, it's going to be my room. But how this is happening psychologically so many times in, in a day. Now, this point of contact and feeling tone arising is really a very crucial point to understand. And it takes a lot of mindfulness to see this. Because this is the weakest link in the fabricating process. We can move so quickly from that point into the world of construction. Um, contact and feeling, tone, flow in. Sensory, no, sorry, sensory impressions flow in. There is contact, there is feeling, tone. And with, without mindfulness, what we see is that there are processes that are triggered that have these outcomes of contractedness and struggle and distress. So then we look, what what is triggered without mindfulness? You know, what is triggered through that contact, feeling, tone, perceptions? What what is it that is triggered? I I mean, and the Buddha was had has this word in in Pali, uh, the early language of recording, anusias. Now, sometimes anusia, the Pali word anusia, is sometimes translated as underlying tendencies or patterns. The translation I really love is that what is triggered are the obsessions we lie down with. (laughs) I love that. The obsessions we lie down with. Um, And it can be so useful to reflect on... What obsessions and patterns do I most frequently find myself lying down with? You know, it, it's kind of interesting. Is it craving? Is it aversion? Is it anxiety? Is it views? Is it, is it doubt? Is it confusion? 
Is it the desire to become a certain kind of person? Or, or is it the desire to get rid of the kind of person I believe myself to be? And, and how many times do we find ourselves... You know, one has to keep a sense of humor about this stuff, you know, please. Um, how many times in a single day do we find ourselves painting our world with these patterns? Sometimes it... <laughs> I, I don't say this to depress you. Um, <laughs> but so we can learn from our experience, so we can learn to be not so hypnotized, not so enchanted with the pattern. So we can learn to be disenchanted with confusion and distress. And as strange as it sounds, you know, we can be kind of enchanted with our patterns and our obsessions because they deliver a world of familiarity. You know, they deliver the world that we know. They, they deliver the, the world that can feel in some strange way kind of safe or have m- meaning. They, they deliver a sense of I am. Hmm? And, and we can learn instead, I feel, to be enchanted um, with stillness. We can learn to be enchanted with non-fabrication. We can learn to be enchanted with freedom. As, you know, the English language is so difficult, isn't it? Because we put the I and the we at the beginning of every sentence. You know, I do this, we do this. As if somehow it's our fault, you know, and we're choosing it, you know. And it wouldn't make any sense to say one does this, you know, or one does that. Or, But hold that lightly, just our language structure, because it can sound so accusatory, you know, rather than just practical not every language by the way does put i at the beginning of every sentence and um so it it follows that as our as we paint our world and our world of experience it follows that the world that is being painted will shape our speech actions and choices and all the ways that we touch the world around us If our world of experience is painted by anxiety or by fear, it's unlikely that we're going to move through this life with confidence and trust. If our world of experience is painted with aversion, it's it's less likely that we will really see the goodness and the lovely in ourselves and others. It would paint our choices and the ways that we touch the world around us. And it is really, you know, out of compassion for ourselves and out of compassion for the distress in this world that we can perhaps sense the urgency of being disenchanted with distress and its origins in craving and aversion and confusion, knowing so deeply that this world we live in simply does not need more greed, does not need more hatred, does not need more views or selfing. And the wonderful news, of course, is that none of this is a life sentence. And it really doesn't matter how long the history of the obsessions we lie down with. It does not mean they have an equally long future. You know, and, and that is the kind of awesomeness, I think, of this practice, is how our world can shift in a moment from being so contracted to being so spacious, from being so lost to being so grounded 
you know, how this world of experience can shift in just a moment. So it's it's never a good idea to have this this idea of this, you know, this many lifetimes projects of working out our obsessions. It does it it's not helpful. Um it's actually, you know, it's actually very uninspiring and rather fatiguing, actually. Um, it's much more helpful to actually begin to sense how how this world can shift on its axis in a moment. When we put in place the conditions for that shifting in terms of awareness, in terms of kindness, in terms of investigation, how that world can just shift on its axis in a moment from something very imprisoning and limiting to something that feels so spacious and free. Awakening, awareness, kindness, generosity, compassion, profound understanding, these these are actually seeds of potentiality that lie within each of our hearts. And with these, our world can be painted inwardly and outwardly. And I think this requires a, a reorientation in our minds, where in our hearts, where we, we cease to be, cease to delight in, or cease to be enchanted with the aggregates of distress building in terms of craving and aversion. And we cease to delight in views and self-building, <clears throat> and instead we learn to delight in that which heals and liberates both inwardly and outwardly. You know, this path has never been concerned with producing perfect meditators. It has never been the object of this path. You know, having ten breaths in a row does not win you brownie points in the the enlightenment landscape. It's never been concerned with producing perfect meditators, but with, with, with encouraging and nurturing ethical and awake people who can touch the world with generosity and with clarity and with understanding. And it takes really a good deal of commitment and effort to cultivate the lovely and the healing and the liberating. And for me, it's such a a reorientation that many people find so hard to, to go from this incredible work ethic we have where we feel like our whole path is about working on things. I, I would just, I really wish we could uncouple meditation from the word work. You know, I, I really, that would be my deepest wish. You know. <laughs> uncouple the word meditation from the word work. Because we have this ideology that you know, somehow believes that if I'm going, if I work successfully on the difficult, I'm going to be rewarded with the lovely. It's not how the Buddha speaks about this path. You know? Nowhere, you know what the Buddha speaks about? It is by cultivating the lovely that we that the difficulties are unbound from. That's really hard for us to have confidence in, isn't it? Because we are so conditioned to just keep on hammering away at the coal face, you know, and thinking, you know, eventually we're gonna we're gonna hit the sort of uh, you know the gold the or go- you know the gold, you know. It doesn't in my experience it doesn't work that way at all. You know, and I think this reorientation, this shift that, you know, just stop working and start cultivating. 
That would be my advice. (laughs) Maybe they'll be my retirement words, you know. Stop working, start cultivating. (laughs) By cultivating the lovely, there is a, a disentangling from the unlovely. It loses its power. It loses its substantiality. It loses its grip. And this takes effort. It takes commitment. But, you know, think about the difference it makes, you know. If you were to come in here and sit or go into your walking path, you know, really working on my aversion. (laughs) I'm absolutely serious about working on my anxiety. (laughs) Or I come into a sit, go into my walking path. Ah, I think I'll cultivate spaciousness. I'll cultivate stilling. Ah, this is dedicated to cultivating calming. Oh, this is dedicated to cultivating kindness, compassion. Which path would you rather be on? (laughs) You know, which really is a pathway that really speaks to the heart's potential rather than to our ingrained work ethic. With mindfulness sitting on the sills of the doors and the windows, we are stepping out of this cycle of automatic reactivity and we're stepping into a world of responsiveness and we're learning to liberate the moment, understanding that in the cultivation of generosity, in that moment, we have abandoned the cultivation of craving. In the cultivation of kindness, in that moment, we have abandoned the cultivation of ill will. In the cultivation of compassion, in that moment we have abandoned the cultivation of harshness and intolerance. And the opposite is also true. In cultivating ill will, we have abandoned the cultivation of kindness. In cultivating clinging, we have abandoned the cultivation of generosity. So with mindfulness established, we're able to choose moment to moment what is cultivated and what is abandoned. And this, as the Buddha path put it, is a direct path to the unshakable liberation of the heart. All those small moments when we forsake the unlovely and cultivate the lovely, this is, these are the moments when we discover joyfulness and peace where we discover a ground of inner stillness that can be the birthplace of our thoughts and our words and our acts that touch the world with kindness and courage and generosity. And this has always been the timeless invitation of this path, that we don't need to search for the moments to cultivate the healing and the liberating. We are already in those moments. We're already in those moments. And we we can stand at that canvas with the palette of colors in our hands and paint a world of joyfulness, of stillness, of understanding. And here, craving and aversion and selfing are really cut off at the root. Instead, we have stillness and empathy and compassion. And in a way, this is all that makes sense anymore. I think this is the freedom that we can find and the most precious gift that we can offer to the world.
is in our capacity to really liberate the moment from greed and hatred and delusion and liberate the moment into the thriving of understanding and compassion and responsiveness. Take just a moment quietly together. Okay, thank you for your attention. We have some time for some walking and then coming back for the last group sitting the evening. <clears throat>